Okay, you should have noticed a yellow piece of string in your seats. Everyone see that? Everyone's got it? Take this yellow piece of string, and we're going to do a simple experiment to demonstrate a powerful lesson in leadership. Okay, all you need is a piece of string and a flat surface. So you could, if you wanted to try this now, you could maybe use the seat next to you, or you could even use the floor um, in front of you, or if you just want to learn it now and do it at home, you're welcome to do that. Either way, here's what you do. You're going to take the piece of string and you're going to lay it down on a flat surface, okay? And lay it in a straight line. And if the goal is to get this piece of string to stay straight and go from point A to point B, there's a couple ways you could go about it. The first one is to take a piece of of the string um, in the opposite direction of where you want it to go and sort of push it along, right? And if you do that, what do you notice? Go ahead and try it if you can. Take a a piece of, of the string, grip it in your fingers, and try to push it along. What inevitably happens? It starts to bunch up, right? As you push it, it doesn't stay straight. It starts to bend, it starts to curve, and it starts to bunch up. Now, instead of pushing it, I want you to take the end, get out in front of it in the direction you want to go, and pull the string and see what happens. See, as you pull the string, the string moves in the same direction as your hand, and it stays straight. Wherever your hand leads, the string will follow. Now you can thank Dwight Eisenhower for this simple yet powerful lesson in leadership. Here's what he said. He said, pull the string and it will follow you wherever you wish. Push the string and it will go nowhere at all. See, to lead, according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, says to guide on a way, especially, don't miss this, by going in advance. So in leadership, the leader stands ahead to pave the way, both by their example and by compelling vision. And when that happens, people are motivated, in fact, even attracted to follow. Remember the string. When you push it, it simply crumbles up and goes nowhere. So if you try to lead by pushing, getting behind people and, and, and trying to force your way, you get nowhere. But if you go out ahead, if you lead by example, what happens? It lines up and goes wherever you gently direct it. Today, as we come to John chapter 13, we come to one of the most famous scenes in all of the New Testament, the washing of the disciples' feet. And it's in this chapter that Jesus models for his disciples loving servant leadership. It is a vivid demonstration of how to humble yourself and seek the interest of others at cost to yourself. And both in its demonstration and in its communication, it's a stunning and compelling vision for life. This chapter in John 13 begins the final road to the cross. And Jesus is going to show us it's a road that we're meant to walk as well. Jesus out in front leading the way. He gently pulls the string. He doesn't push it. He pulls the string and we are called to follow him. This morning as we look at John chapter 13, we're going to learn three things. First, we're going to see Jesus give us a cruciform pattern 
to follow. A cruciform pattern to follow. Jesus leads out in front, pulling the string, and he demonstrates by example how we are to love and serve others. But we're also going to see in our passage today a dangerous path to avoid. On the one hand, Jesus leads by example, gives us a cruciform pattern to follow. We're going to see Judas demonstrating a dangerous path to avoid. Because our scene today also has a dark side to it. There's betrayal. And it serves as a stark contrast to Christ's example. And then finally, after the betrayal, Jesus will end the passage with a summary of his example and a compelling leadership principle for life. Jesus gives us a leadership principle for life. So we'll see a cruciform pattern to follow, a dangerous path to avoid, and a compelling principle for life. Start with me in verse 1 as we see this cruciform pattern. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If you have your Bibles and you're one of those who loves to underline and and, and make notes and circle things like I do, that's something to underline. He loved them to the end. See, John sets the scene for us with an introductory comment in verse 1. And it serves to introduce us to this great chapter, to this foot washing scene, but it also serves to introduce us into this passion narrative, which is going to take the rest of the book of John, where Jesus gives up his life for his own. And right now it is just before the Passover meal. All the preparations have been made. They're they're there in the, the upper room. And the time, the hour has now finally come. If you've been paying attention throughout the Gospel of John, you've heard that word hour used over and over, over and over, where Jesus has talked about this coming hour. And up until this point, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. This time when he would be glorified and he would fulfill his ultimate purpose for coming. But now, as we turn into the passion narrative, the time has come. The hour is now at hand. And the time has come for him to depart this world and return back to the Father. And John tells us he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. That word end is a special word. In the Greek, it's the word telos. And it means goal or purpose. So it doesn't just mean that he loved him to the end of, his, of, of the timing of it. It means he loved him to his end, his end, his purpose, his mission. And now it marks the, the beginning of the climax of the book. As you read through the rest of John, you're going to find the action gets intense. The tension is going to rise. If this was a motion picture, you would hear the, the music start to get intense, letting you know that the, that the, the, the action is rising and the climax is about to happen. Jesus will spend the next couple of chapters instructing and praying for his disciples during that Passover Last Supper meal. Then he's going to be betrayed. And that will lead to his arrest, his trial, and ultimate crucifixion. And then on the cross, as Jesus breathes out his last, John records some of his final words. And Jesus says, it is finished. And he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. Now that phrase, it is finished, is really one Greek word. And it's the word tetelestai. 
And if you listen closely, telos, he loved him to the end. And to tell us die, you can hear that they're similar. And that's because they are. Telos is the noun, which means end or goal or purpose. To tell us die comes from the, the, the verb, to achieve a goal or purpose. So you see what John is doing? He's saying Jesus loved him to his purpose. And when Jesus said it is finished, he was saying, I have fulfilled and accomplished my purpose. John is saying Jesus was laser focused on accomplishing his purpose and his purpose was the cross. In other words, Jesus doesn't give up on us or his purpose for us. He came here to fulfill a mission and nothing would deter him from accomplishing that mission. Jesus says it over and over in the gospels that he came to give his life as a ransom for many so that those whom the Father entrusted to him would be reconciled back to him. Jesus loves you to the end. And I'll skip down in verses four to five. Jesus rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now let's talk about foot washing for a moment. This is a culture where people walk long distances in dusty roads. There's no paved roads there. And they usually wear sandals. And so as you would come in for the evening meal, it was customary for the host to arrange for a basin of water to be available so that you could wash your feet. And if it was a formal meal or if you were wealthy, this foot washing task was typically the duty of a slave. And not just any slave, but a Gentile slave. This was something that Jews would have considered that they were above. They wouldn't have done this kind of work. This was reserved for the lowest class of slaves. I mean, think about it. The very act itself requires you to get low to the ground where feet are, right? And you have to touch feet. Feet. It's gross. And while you're down there, you're dealing with the smell. Like feet smell, I don't care who you are. And you've been walking around all day in the dust. There's dust and grime. No telling what you've stepped on, what's oozed in between your toes. And it's the job of that slave to clean your feet. It's humiliating. It's humbling. Foot washing was especially necessary for formal meals like the Passover. Because for formal meals, you wouldn't be sitting down. You wouldn't be eating on the go. You would actually linger. You would recline on a mat with one elbow propping you up. And so there'd be a, a, a table low to the ground and you'd have a mat and you would lean on it and you would eat with one hand and then your feet would be sticking out and they would extend out. See, when we dine today, our feet are all hidden under the table, right? But here in this meal, your feet are out in the open. So you need them to be clean, not only in order to feel clean, but so that they're not just sticking out there. So to wash up for a formal meal, not only would you wash your hands, but you would also wash your feet. And from the first verses, as we're introduced into this Passover meal, you might assume that the foot washing has already taken place. But we find out in verse 4 that the meal has begun, but there was no basin poured. There was no slave at the door to wash their feet. 
So what does our what does John tell us? John tells us that Jesus pauses the meal. And he assumes the role and even dresses the part of the slave. Pauses the meal and he gets up. Do you notice how detailed these verses are? Do you notice how John slows down the narrative? He wants us to see it. He wants us to enter the story. So I want you, as I read it again, to picture it in your mind. That Jesus rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him do you see it Can you see him there? Now look with me at verse six to seven. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now, if you've spent any time in the gospels, you're not surprised that Peter speaks up. He is like the the disciple spokesperson. He's always the one speaking out. He generally puts into words what everybody else is thinking and feeling, right? But they're too afraid to say it. And Peter is rightly taken aback that Jesus is washing their feet. This would have been shocking, unexpected to say the least. Why? Jesus is their rabbi. He's the leader of the group. He's their Lord. If anyone should be washing feet, it should be the disciples washing feet his feet, not the other way around him. And Jesus tells him that he's doing something more than just filling the unmet practical need for clean feet. Jesus says, afterwards, you'll understand more fully what I'm doing. I'm I'm pointing to something bigger. The significance of what Jesus is doing will be realized more fully in the days to come. Now, we know that because we're standing well on the other side of this event. We've, we've read the story. We, we know how it ends. We know the end of this story. We know that the foot washing marks the beginning of the road to the cross. But Peter doesn't know that fully yet. We know that Jesus is doing something with water that points to a soul level cleansing that will be accomplished on the cross. We know that foot washing isn't what Jesus came to do. It wasn't the end. When Jesus said that he was going to love them to the end, yes, foot washing shows love, but that's not the ultimate goal, is it? The ultimate goal, like I showed you in John 19:30, is him going to the cross, breathing his last and dying. Foot washing is not the goal. It's not the supreme act. It's not how Jesus will ultimately love them to the end. So this foot washing then is a sign. It's pointing to the final act. Jesus on the cross. Now let's keep going in verses 8 to 10. So Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And then Jesus said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. 
and you are clean, but not every one of you. So again, Peter doesn't fully understand. He still thinks Jesus is talking about social norms and having clean feet. So he says, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. Then Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, then you have no share with me. This concept of having a share with Jesus is a, a, a concept linked to inheritance. Jesus is saying, Peter, if you want a stake in my kingdom, if you want to share in my inheritance, then I must wash you. And we know that Peter understands what Jesus is getting at because his, his whole disposition turns on a dime, right? Before it was, don't wash my feet. And now he's like, wait, sharing in your inheritance? Okay, wash my head, my hands, my, all of me. Like if we're talking about a share, I'll take as much as I can get. Wash all of me. Then Jesus starts to explain how foot washing is a symbol pointing to the greater reality of his overall mission. Jesus came to remove guilt from guilty sinners and to purify us from the pollution of sin. So here's the analogy. If you've taken a bath and then you've gone out on a walk and your feet have gotten dirty, the only thing that needs to be cleaned are your feet. You don't need to, to take a whole bath again. All you need is for your feet to become clean. Likewise, all of those who have, been, have had their sins washed away by the blood of the lamb, when we sin, we don't need to bathe again. We don't need to be born again again. We don't need to be saved again. We don't need to be justified again because we've already bathed. Jesus has removed our sins. We don't need to be saved again. What we need then is to confess, repent, and change and that ongoing daily reality that is more frequent is like our feet getting cleaned. John Frame is helpful here. He writes, By his death for us, Jesus has cleansed us completely from sin. But as one's feet accumulate dust on the paths of Palestine, so we accumulate sin in the Christian life. And we need to ask God's forgiveness on a regular basis. This sin does not affect our eternal salvation. You needn't worry that if you die with sin you haven't repented of, that you'll go to hell. But if you love Jesus, your daily sin will grieve you as it grieves him. And so you'll run to him, saying that you're sorry, renounce it, and that you intend to act differently. In the act of foot washing, Jesus is tangibly expressing his love for his disciples, but he's also using it as a teaching moment to show the ongoing reality of frequent daily repentance as we grow in holiness. That's why as a church every week, we practice public and private confession so that it would form a pattern in you for your daily life. I would encourage you making confession and repentance a daily routine. Just like we practice physical hygiene as a daily and like multiple points throughout the day routine. We wash our hands frequently. We brush our teeth multiple times a day. We bathe frequently. Likewise, do so spiritually. Keep a short record of sin. Daily ask, Lord, where do I need you to wash my feet? We don't need him to bathe us and cleanse us fully again. That's already happened. Our sins have been forgiven. But where do I need my feet cleaned? Where do I need to confess and repent? Make that a daily habit. 
But now we need to keep moving and get into verses 12 to 17. So when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place back at the table, he said to him, to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right or so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you knew these things, blessed, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So here's where we get to that cruciform pattern to follow. We had to set the stage so you know what he was talking about. And here's the pattern. Jesus finishes washing their feet. He puts back on his outer garments. He gets back to the table. And now he begins to explain to them what he's done. And he says, listen, I know that I just reversed all the social norms. I know that I, as your Lord and teacher, shouldn't have been the one washing your feet. I know that I did something unexpected, but that's the point. I'm trying to show you that position and power in God's kingdom don't manifest themselves in dominion and control. True power in God's kingdom manifests itself in humility, service, and love. Chuck Colson writes in Kingdoms in Conflict, the lure of power can separate the most resolute of Christians from the true nature of Christian leadership, which is to service others. It's difficult to stand on a pedestal and wash the feet of those below. Nothing distinguishes the kingdoms of man from the kingdoms of God more than their diametrically opposed views of the exercise of power. See, in the kingdom of man, one seeks to control people. In the kingdom of God, the other serves people. One promotes self, the other prostrates self. One seeks prestige and position, and the other lifts up the lowly and despised. Jesus washes the disciples' feet as an example for them. It's meant to be a pattern that we are to replicate. Now, not necessarily in the exact same way. Jesus isn't saying, wherever you go, as you go, wash people's feet. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, everywhere you go, look for ways that you can take the role of a servant and in humility, consider the needs of others. Taking the pattern of foot washing and doing it as an example. Now, why do I call this a cruciform pattern? It's cruciform because it looks like the cross. Cruciform just means cross-shaped. It's because this foot washing scene is a beautiful picture of the great love of Jesus on the cross. Here's what I mean. Think about it. As Jesus begins the foot washing ceremony, he disrobes his garments. And on the cross, Jesus will disrobe his life. Here in this scene, he gets down on his knees. He bends his knee to serve. And on the cross, Jesus will bend his head. Here, Jesus washes the disciples' feet with water. But on the cross, he will wash their souls with his blood. Jesus is not giving us an empty command or telling us to do something he's unwilling to do himself. Not only has he demonstrated that in the foot washing, but he's gone the greater distance, gone out ahead all the way to the cross. 
he goes out ahead and then he says, come, follow me. And he demonstrates this other-centered kind of humility and love all throughout his life. And he calls us to do the same. Jesus is willing to even go the extra mile, the mile none of us could go, in giving up his life for us, which is all the more compelling as we consider our response to not only look to our own interests, but also looking to the interest of others. Now, as we close today, we will talk more about how we can apply this. But for right now, I want you to see that Jesus doesn't push the string in the direction he wants us to go. He doesn't just shout out orders. He pulls the string out ahead of us, leading by example, casting vision with this beautiful picture, this demonstration, giving us a cruciform pattern to follow. Now let's also briefly consider the betrayal of Jesus as a dangerous path to avoid. Look with me at verses 21 and 27. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And so one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, which is John, by the way, who was reclining at table at Jesus' side, Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Figure Peter had spoken enough, so he was like, John, you give it a shot. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So he's saying, I'm going to dip a piece of bread and whoever I give it to, that's the one. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, by the time we come to verse 21, we've already heard Judas and the betrayal three other times. John, as a narrator, sets the scene for us in verse 2 to tell us that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him, which means he's, he's begun the work of temptate, uh, uh, temptation. And, and, and the plot to betray Jesus has already been put into motion, not just in theory, but the, but the, but the wheel's already turning by the time we come to this meal. The plot has been put into action. Judas has been tempted by the devil and he's decided and according to the desires of his own heart to betray Jesus. And already during the supper, Jesus has hinted that there will be a coming betrayal two separate times. In verses 10 to 11, he says, not every one of you is clean. And in verses 17 to 18, Jesus said, someone, one among you is going to lift your heel against him. And now in verse 21, he specifically identifies Judas as the betrayer. Now here's the question I want to ask. Why would Jesus hint and call out Judas three separate times during this meal? He's alluded to it gently, but each time it kind of increases till this final moment. He's like, Judas, it's you. You're the betrayer. You're going to do it. Why would Jesus do that? I think it's because he was giving Judas an opportunity to go in a different direction. So I've taught my two oldest boys how to play chess. I hope to teach all the rest of the kids as they get older. And there'd be times when I'd be teaching them. We'd be sitting there um, playing the game and they're making a move. 
and it's usually a really, really bad move. And then I would, it's one of those that would kind of cost them the game, losing their, their queen or getting set up in an uh, inevitable checkmate. And before they would, you know, they'd move the piece, and before they would lift their hand and end their turn, I would say, do you really want to make that move? Right? And they're kind of paused, and they stop, and they've, they've got their hand on the piece. And I'd look at them, I'm like, do you want to make that move? Look at the board again. What am I doing? I'm giving them an opportunity to look at everything again and to ask, is this the best move? To reconsider what they're going to do. And even though I haven't said it, implicit in my question, do you really want to make that move, is what? You're making a huge mistake. Don't move there. Think again. Reconsider. Don't make the move. That's what Jesus is doing. He's giving Judas an opportunity to say, I've made a huge mistake. He could realize that he's about to be exposed. He could tell Jesus what he's done and he could beg for forgiveness. He could entrust himself into the character of Jesus. This one whom he's seen forgive people over and over and over again. But instead, what does he do? He leaves into the night to carry out the plot. Now think about Judas. Let's give him some credit. He didn't make the decision to betray Jesus in that moment. He started walking down this path years ago. Simon, we know, was a zealot. He was probably really excited about Jesus. The zealots were looking for a Messiah who would bring political unrest to an end. He, they were looking for a Messiah who would finally bring freedom to the oppressed people of Israel. And he sees Jesus with all this power and able to do all these things. And he's going, I'm hitching my, 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 my wagon to him to see what he can do for me. To see if he's going to bring about the political freedom we've been looking for. And he's excited about Jesus. And as they start to travel and go, he's realizing that this Jesus is not who he thought he was. Time and time again, he's choosing the low and the meek. Time and time again, he's, he's giving up power. There were moments in Jesus' ministry where they were ready to make him king. Jesus would do something amazing and the crowds would come and they'd say, we want you to be our king. And Jesus would slip out. And you, you can imagine Judas going, that was our moment. You, they were just willing to give you power and you just turned away from it. And over time, what happens? He begins to harden. Jesus doesn't meet his expectations. And we know from John that he started skimming money out of the treasury. Jesus said, I'll take care of the books. And he started taking money. And slowly but surely, he began to despise Christ to the point where he was willing to trade the life of Christ for a few bucks. And if you read ahead in the gospel accounts, particularly in Matthew and Mark, you realize that once, Jesus realized, once Judas realized that Jesus was going to be crucified, he was overcome with guilt. He even goes back to the high priest and the chief priest and says, I want to I undo what I've done. And they're like, you can't. It's already in motion. And he's overcome with guilt and shame, and he hangs himself. Now think about the stark contrast we have here. John is putting it on display for us. I don't think it's an accident that he puts these two things right next to each other. 
Jesus is self-giving. Judas is self-serving. Judas, Jesus is selfless. Judas is self-absorbed. Jesus is self-emptying. And Judas is self-exalting. Maybe another way to put it is this. For Jesus so loved the world that he gave himself so that none should perish but have everlasting life. Whereas Judas so loved himself that he gave up Jesus so that he might perish and suffer everlasting death. On the one hand, Jesus shows us a cruciform pattern to follow that leads to life. And yet Judas shows us a dangerous path to avoid that leads to death. Now you all seem like very nice people. You might be thinking, listen, I would never go to that extreme. I'm not gonna betray people, give them over to crucifixion and death. That seems a bit extreme. But remember, I guarantee you, Judas didn't have it out for Jesus on day one. His heart slowly hardened and slowly grew cold to Jesus. He kept thinking about what he wasn't getting. His heart was filled with ingratitude. He kept thinking about how Jesus wasn't meeting his expectations. He kept thinking about how Jesus wasn't giving him what he wanted. And before long, he was willing to give up on Jesus altogether. Now, fortunately, none of us are gonna be able to put Jesus on the cross again. That was a one-time historical event and it's done. But every one of us has the opportunity to abandon him and to give him up in our lives today. The question is this, what pattern are you following? What path are you on? Are you following Jesus on this cruciform path looking out ahead to Jesus as your example? Or are you on this dangerous path of selfishness that says I'm in it for what Jesus can get me that leads to death? Friend, be honest with yourself. If you are on that dangerous path, there is still time to turn around and course correct. Jesus is saying, do you really wanna make that move? Do you really want to go down that path? You really can confess your sins to God. You really can entrust yourself to Jesus, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you can give yourself into the arms of Christ, who graciously forgives all who come to him in repentance. Now, real quick, let's finish our final verses which gives us a compelling principle for life. Just two more verses. Jesus says in verse 34, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus has demonstrated his nature his loving nature for his disciples. He's taken the form of a servant. He's washed their feet. And do you remember? He even washes the feet of his betrayer. It's one thing to go, I'll, I'll, I'll bring myself low and do something hard for those who I really love. But for the one who was going to give him up to be crucified, he 
models the same kind of love. He's laser focused on the cross to die in our place for our sin. Do you remember the analogy of the string that we started with? A leader goes out ahead and says, follow me. He doesn't stand behind and say, march on. He stands out ahead and says, come, follow me. A leader leads by example, and they cast compelling vision. Jesus has given them this great example to follow, and now he summarizes it in a concise and compelling principle. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, when you do this, when you love like this, people will know that you are my disciples. And did you notice he called this a new command? Now, if you're paying attention, you're realizing, wait a minute, didn't Jesus talk about love a lot? Didn't he teach on love? And the answer is yes, he, he taught on love all the time. But here, he gives an additional depth and purpose to this love. Think about what is the example he just pointed to, this foot washing example. And with this example still fresh in their minds, it eliminates any notion of superficial love. See, people talk about loving all the time. People say, I love people. I'm a loving person. But love requires truth, compassion, and action. It's not enough simply to say, I love you, but not be willing to listen to you when you're hurting, not be willing to extend compassion to you when you need it, not be willing to actually act. See, love, is, it, it's not enough to talk about it or to feel it. Love acts. Love does something. For it to be distinctly Christian love, it must line up with the truth. It must also have compassion and it must act. And Jesus has done all of those in this example. So Jesus is saying, I want you to love one another, not in theory, but in practice. And if you need a good example, remember the foot washing that I've just done for you. See, Jesus didn't come to start a foot washing movement, but he's saying, I want you to love others in a way that follows that cruciform pattern that I have set. So think about it. He's saying, be willing to get low. Be willing to meet people where they are. Be willing to love at cost to yourself. Be willing to be uncomfortable. Be willing to be misunderstood. Be willing to pour out yourself for another, love one another as I have loved you. But not only does Jesus show the depth of that love, he also shows us the missional purpose behind it, right? Because he says, when you love one another like this, it will become a powerful apologetic for the gospel. When Christians love others and love one another with this cruciform, cross-shaped, Christ-like love, it resembles Christ and it becomes a powerful witness for the gospel. When people see this love on display, it proves the gospel. In fact, J.C. Ryle writes, let us note that our Lord does not name gifts or miracles or intellectual attainments as evidence of discipleship, but love, the simple grace of love, a grace within the reach of the poorest, lowliest believer as the evidence of discipleship. If we have no love, we have no grace, no regeneration, no true Christianity. If you notice, my voice is kind of hoarse right now, 
And that's not COVID. That's because I'm coaching three separate teams in Little League Baseball. And we're out on the field six days a week. And it takes a lot of, of, of loud, robust dialogue to get things moving. And one of the things I, it's like one of my big rules is do not walk on my field. Don't walk. It takes a lot of skill to get in position, to move to the ball, to get your body down low, to get to the ball, to know where you're supposed to be. Baseball is a very mental game. Depending on every different scenario, you have a different job. It takes skill. It takes muscle to swing a bat at a fastball. It takes an incredible amount of, of, of skill and just physical strength to play the game. But it takes no skill whatsoever to hustle. All it takes is desire. All it takes is that you care about it and that you want to do it. Everybody, no matter how awkward or slow, can run, can hustle, can get there, can show something more than a lazy lack of effort. It doesn't require skill. It just requires effort. And I love this. Jesus doesn't say, hey, for the smartest people in the room, people will know that you're my disciples. For, the, uh, uh, for those who have the, the best skill set, who are able to serve in these miraculous ways. No, he says, you just have to love. It does not require skill. It just requires effort. So friends, as we close, here are some practical questions you can ask to apply this principle. First, who is God calling you to love? See, if you just keep it in theory, your love will remain theoretical unless you give it a name. Put a name on it. Who is God calling you to love? Who is God calling you to do this foot washing kind of love? Maybe it's a hard to love family member. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a person who is different than you economically, politically, ethnically, racially. Spend some time asking God to reveal who he is calling you to move toward in this foot washing kind of love. Begin in prayer and say, God, who do you want me to love? Second, what tangible ways can you extend love to this person? So now you've got a name, now you've got a face, now how are you going to put it in action? Maybe it's the simple gift of a meal. Maybe it's the simple gift of uninterrupted time where you listen and engage in good conversation. Maybe you recognize an unmet need and meet it. Maybe it's burying the hatchet and being the mature loving person to extend forgiveness, even if all of the things haven't become resolved yet. Whatever it is, put your love into action, asking God, now you've told me who to love. Now, how do you want me to love? Friends, this is how the world will know that we are disciples of Christ. This is one of the ways that people will be drawn into the love of Christ. So let's follow the cruciform pattern of Christ. And let's love, not in theory, but in practice as we put our love into action. Let's pray.